morning, viewers. Uh, we are viewing this from the screens of the Nayong Filipino Foundation, uh, ECOMOS, and the Intramurals Administration, and anyone who's hosting a watch party right now. So, good morning from the Nayong Filipino Foundation. I am Laya Bokiren. Umpukan sa Nayon or Umpukan is a series of multi-sectoral consultations initiated by the NPF or Nayong Filipino Foundation to enliven conversations based on its mandate in PD37-1972 and the recently developed strategic roadmap. Originally, the project is under the Heritage Space Program of the NPF, meant to enable public participation for the development of the physical setting and content of the future cultural park and creative hub near Manila Bay. The site is close to the Las Peñas Paranaque critical habitat and ecotourism area. On the other hand, Umpukan is also a research tool for developing NPF programs and providing basis for policy research. So this is the third iteration of the Umpukan, and we are collaborating with ECOMOS and Intramuros Administration. Maligayang pambansang buwan ng pamana sa inyong lahat. Joining us this morning are thought leaders and esteemed specialists in heritage conservation from various fields, including those working directly with communities and seasoned cultural workers. So to introduce, let me just share my screen. Okay, so this is the Heritage Communities in Our Future, Umpukan. Uh, with us this morning is Tina Paterno, who is currently the president of the ICOMOS, or the International Council of Monuments and Sites. She is also an architectural conservator. Uh, with, also, with us also is Dr. Victor Venida, an economist from the Indian Studies Program and Economics Department of the Ateneo de Manila. With us also is Eric Akpedonu, a faculty member of the Department of Fine Arts at the Ateneo de Manila. Also with us is Claudia Montero, who is incoming PhD student in the Chinese University of Hong Kong and trained historian. Also with us is Bettina Bulaong, who is the executive director of the Escuela Talier de Filipinas Foundation. Attorney Guillermo Acido has been a public servant and is currently the administrator of the Intramuros Administration. Cecil Torrevillas Galicame is the director of the Museo de la Sal and is also the president of the Southern Luzon Association of Museums. She is also the used to be the vice chair of NCCA's National Committee on Museums. With us is Nestor Herfilia, an esteemed artist and cultural worker who initiated the project, Our Community of Practice. We have Chen Menchas, a tourism planning consultant who conceptualized ecotourism Philippines. And, and last but not the least, we have Raji Florido, the program officer for the culture of, for culture of UNESCO National Commission of the Philippines, and is also a master's uh, student uh, take, uh, taking up uh, the program at Asian Studies in UP Diliman. And finally, we have Cara Garilao, who is our moderator for this morning. She has a master's degree in heritage conservation from the University of Sydney and has authored many conservation management plans and heritage impact assessments. And she used to work for heritage, heritage consultant with Graham Brooks and Associates in Sydney, Australia. Uh, so that's it for um, the participants and moderator of Umpukan Sanayon Heritage Communities in Our Future. I'll stop sharing my screen now and I'll turn over the discussion to Ms. Kaya Karina. Thank you, Laya. 
So, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much, Nayong Latino Foundation, Ecomas Philippines, and Ginger Moore's administration for inviting Actually, I'm quite excited, a bit daunting, to be honest, by this task, as uh, I think we will be touching on so many topics, and I only wish uh, we had uh, more time. Before we start, I just thought I would share my reflection for today. Not many people know that today, May 12, is the day that um, President Jiro Makapagal uh, issued Proclamation 28, which declared that uh, Philippine independence be moved from July 4 to June 12, uh, the day it's declared in Kawi things that uh, Makabagal stated there was, uh, and I will quote, whereas the transcendental importance of the event, meaning the Declaration of Independence, demand that it be observed throughout the land in fitting ceremonies to the end that it will be cherished forever for the hearts of them and posterity to greater dedication and endeavor for the welfare of the country and the well-being of mankind there was this active move for us to remember uh, this important event through celebration. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work in Kawit and I've really seen how Independence Day celebrations have really changed over the decades and how its meaning June 12 has also evolved over the last uh, few decades we associate quite, uh, it quite a bit with uh, sometimes long weekends, holiday economics, and I wonder if uh, Makapangal ever thought that this would happen. So COVID-19, I think, is an opportunity for the heritage industry really to come together and to really think about what we are doing and the purpose of uh, conservation within the Philippine context. Uh, there are a lot of uh, challenges that the country will be facing. And I think that the question of our relevance, uh, are we relevant uh, moving forward in the face of a health crisis, an economic crisis, is something that we should be discussing. So what we mean by communities, what role do we want to play in the future? How are we going to be relevant? I think we will not be able to find all the answers <laughs> to these really heavy questions. But I'm really excited to listen to everyone's perspective and to see how we can push the conservation practice. So the discussion will be divided into two parts. Uh, the first, I just want to check up on everyone. Thank you so much, uh, Chen, Raji, Tina, Victor, Claudia, Cecil, Tina, Eric, Nestor and Attorney Gilmer for joining us. And the second part will be more of the discussion. So I would really love to hear more from each and every one of you. So without further ado, maybe we can start with one of our hosts, uh, Attorney Gilmer. How are things 
uh, how has uh, the COVID pandemic impacted the workers in uh, IA? And uh, how has um, traditional knowledge systems helped, if at all, your community cope with this pandemic? Oh, attorney, your, your mic. I think we're having some technical difficulties with uh, attorney Gilear. Maybe we go to our other, host, our other organizer for today. Uh, Philippines, Tina, I'm sure, uh, I know that Kumos had a meeting. And how are the members of the organization uh, dealing with this pandemic? What has been the impact so far? Um, it was different across different disciplines. I think the archaeologists and the tourism sector folks were the hardest hit archaeology because their work is so site-specific and also in... Um, in education, they had to cancel that because it's very site-specific. Uh, the architects were, were still chugging on, um, in part because they did a lot of digital documentation. And the extent of their design work depended on how well they documented their site. This is true also for the planners. Um, and while we had this on April 25, I was kind of expecting a morose a bunch of people, but they actually, the team ended up with a pretty sunny outlook. And it's exactly what you said. This is a, this mandatory pause is a chance to press the reset button and really rethink and reframe systems and their opportunities in that. I've been looking for the profile of who exactly was laid off? What is the profile of workers who lost their jobs? And I'm, I'm guessing while um, a lot of the ECOMOS members uh, had government jobs suspended or the hotels were pulling out, uh, they still had work. What I'm trying to get a grip on is the mass loss of daily wage earners in the heritage sector, I'm guessing the contractuals in the heritage sector, those employed by the LGU on six-month terms uh, are also retired. Okay, thank you. It's nice to hear that, uh, that the professionals are have a sunny disposition uh, about this. How about, uh, let's go to the south of the Philippines, to Mindanao, uh, with Sir Nestor Horfilia. Sir Nestor, how is the pandemic affecting workers in the heritage sector in Mindanao? And I'm, I'm sure the traditional knowledge systems are probably helping to cope better than those of us living in urban jungles. Uh, thank you, Kara. And, uh... Thank you for allowing us to join in this conversation and we would like to share a bit of our initiatives in engaging communities in heritage conservation. Uh, prior to and during the ECQ uh, due to the pandemic, uh, uh, in the last quarter of 2019, prior to the lockup, now, we had uh, several projects in the Davao region and in Sambuanga Peninsula uh, directly related to 
safeguarding in, uh, intangible cultural heritage as well as conserving tangible cultural heritage. I would like to ask uh, a colleague of mine to read a very short draft briefer on what has been done uh, before and after uh, and during the ECQ. Okay, so the first project was conduct of the rapid cultural profiling in Davao region, a cultural mapping and inventory of community heritage elements, both the natural and cultural heritage, tangible as well as the intangible. Now the project covered five provinces comprised of 43 municipalities and chartered city of Davao. It was intended to influence the LGU to oblige their respective cultural and arts councils to be functional. The project envisions engaging the community stakeholders to pursue legislative actions and declare at least two heritage sites in every municipality by 2021. Moreover, these sites shall be developed as vital components of the heritage tourism circuit of Davao region by 2022. On the other hand, the project in Zamboanga focuses on safeguarding of the indigenous Subanan Thanksgiving ritual complex, the Gibok Club last December 10, 2019. The Gibok Club was inscribed in the UNESCO's representative list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity in need of urgent safeguarding. Thus, the first quarter of 2020, with the support from the NCCA and the UNESCO Center in Japan, we were able to assist the Subanin Culture Masters in the publication of a learning guide for safeguarding the Gibok Club, which can be integrated in the teaching and learning activities in both formal and non-formal education. Now, the third initiative centered on devising learning modules for public school teachers to integrate heritage education in the senior high school curriculum, especially in the arts and design track. During the implementation of ECQ and GCQ, most of our activities were either postponed or canceled. However, we were able to continue some engagement, albeit limited. Among others, we started the production of learning modules and short AB materials focused on cultural heritage elements that are considered significant to the multicultural communities in Mindanao. Likewise, some of our colleagues assisted the members of indigenous Subanan communities in Zamboanga Peninsula region in the conduct of culture actions in response to COVID-19 pandemic. The ritual specialist or the bailan in five Subanan settlements officiated the indigenous Giligan Sagampang ritual to invoke the help of the spirits and make them better as they conduct, as they conduct the customary social practices in safeguarding community health and promoting community wealth sharing while experiencing the extended community quarantine. Okay, uh, two different sites two different levels of engagement and two different ways of reacting to the pandemic. Uh, while the Subanans in Sambanga Peninsula continue with their traditional uh, rituals and knowledge system, now we here in the city like Davao have to uh, slow down uh, our engagement in heritage education, especially now that those working with the LGUs in the five provinces and 43 municipalities uh, just couldn't be uh, readily be contacted no, by us to pursue our planned work. Um, that's all for the moment. Uh, thank you.
Thank you again, Cara. Thank you, Sir Nestor. I liked what you tapped on. No? Um, rituals that promote community wealth and sharing at this time reminded me of this article on the Tengao in uh, Northern Philippines that our indigenous communities there are practicing to really safeguard the health of the people. And we will explore this further, but uh, from the south of the Philippines, let's go to the extreme north, to Tanes, uh, where Chen and Sias has done a lot of work. Chen, how is the community up there? And uh, how are you thriving? Um, I've been there actually for quite some time. Uh, we were supposed to start a project. Uh, prior to uh, the lockdown, but we had to postpone that. Um, it's part of the tourism master planning. We were going, we were moving into phase two of the project, so that has to be postponed. But um, my understanding is that um, the Batans, all this time, you know, for centuries, have been very resilient. Uh, whatever challenges they face, whether it's um, the decent earthquake. We've heard about that, right? And they always like um, band together as a community. And culture has been a major, um, a major element in in that in the resiliency of the Ibatan. And but my concern, um, because of this COVID, um, some of the rituals may not be performed at least in the next twelve months. Um, here, you know, barangay would have. Uh, anyhan, you know, they call it Kabaybay Banan. It's specifically a Bayanihan that helps uh, family restores the roof of their Ibatan house. And almost 100 people, most of the entire community or members of the barangay would take part in restoring the roof. So they have certain schedules, they already planned for that already assessed which house will come next and so that will be adopted that will have to be rescheduled uh, but you know the timing of these rituals this events community event is also uh, sync with the harvesting of the materials that they need for the roof i don't know how that could be uh, harmonized again with regards to the scale of nature because the community is in sync with that. But now because of the pause, um, maybe they really have to, to think about how they are going to restore this uh, uh, sense of community because, you know, with social distance, you can possibly have, you know, groups of people converging together, you know, shoulder to shoulder, you know, restoring roofs or houses. So that's the main concern because I've been involved in some of these events. And uh, these are high-value um, community rituals that very few tourists have seen. So that's the concern. Um, but going into the, 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 the bigger picture, because I'm a tourism planner, um, my, my, my insight is this. Um, well, we, we look at heritage two ways, like we have natural and cultural heritage, right? Uh, my observation with regards to natural cultural heritage conservation is that we would have less people protecting them because, uh, like Tina said, you know, many of these people have contracts for six months and they may not be renewed because of less financial resources. You know, the resources of the government has been stretched. 
too stretched that in fact um, money will have to go to health primarily and food uh, but not into protecting forests or coral reefs and stuff also protecting heritage pre-covid the community are already um, facing losing their heritage uh, dilution of culture you know stoppage of rituals and all that so with poverty because we have less money now your family income diminished savings are depleted uh, we will have to face poverty and when you have poverty there's financial vulnerability when there's financial vulnerability it's like a, it's like a domino when when you have financial vulnerability heritage is also vulnerable because now um, value because we associate different types of value to heritage right but now because of poverty most people those who are in on the ground in the rural areas where most of this heritage is intact will most probably primarily equate heritage with money monetary value so we are we may be facing a big challenge as as uh, heritage conservationists because if we are working so hard pre-covid we will be working twice as hard after covid because we will have to convince them that not to sell their family heirloom, their house, their old house, their antiques, you know, they, they have to exchange that for food. They have to raise money. They, primarily, they have to survive. They have to feed their stomachs first. So I, that, that's, that's, that's the dilemma that I think we have to face. As that's from the perspective of a planner. Thank you very much. You already raised one of my favorite topics, the question of value. Yes, <laughs> what value. do we mean by value? We will delve into that um, in the second part of our uh, discussion. But thank you very much for, for that. Um, uh, Cecil in uh, Cavite. And Hello, in Mateo, how are you? How are, how are you? Can you hear me well? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. So good morning, everyone. Nice to meet you, though virtually. And thank you for the opportunity to share in behalf of the Luzon um, Museum. Sorry for that. Anyway, um, allow me to share briefly some few slides to give you an overview on what is happening in the, among the museums in Southern Luzon. So, include us here. So let me share this brief, a few slides with you. So here, um, SLAM, for those who don't know yet, is composed of, it's a regional museum association. And we have about 13 museum members coming from, mostly from Calabarzon, Cavite, Laguna, Batangas, and Quezon. And these are museums, either private or public. So a lot of our members are actually LGU museums and NHC museums or the National Historical Commission of the Philippine Museums. Um, these museums immediately closed as soon as the quarantine was implemented. So imagine, uh, of course, the tourism sector was, the, was among the sectors primarily affected when the COVID-19 happened. So there was this concern, um, it's not exclusive to us, but to a lot of us on manpower, especially for the contractual services, um, a lot of our staff had to stop working, and stop working means not getting paid, we just had to be um, evaluated and 
we, it's a major concern. It's a major problem. So we were talking about our, uh, amongst ourselves and we were saying, um, tulong ka pa ba sa iba? Eh, ito nga sa tabi mo, tulungan mo na lang. So parang that became our advocacy. Instead of um, extending help to far, farther places, we had to help our own staff on how to survive during this lockdown period. Other than that, protecting heritage is another concern of ours. Specifically for museums, our task was, is, is, is really to um, preserve objects and artifacts. So imagine how difficult it is now that manpower is cut down, we cannot go to our museums, we cannot do the regular periodic checking of collection, considering the uh, storage conditions in many museums in South Luzon are not ideal, prior lockdown more so now. Our museums are also not ideal conditions for ideal museums because most are old houses, very limited budget. So imagine the, the difficulty in maintaining or maintaining a keep of this collection being um, that, that's being given to museums. So that is a big challenge for us now, especially now it's summer. And then also most of the museum personnel are technologically challenged. So how do we the struggle to keep up and to develop another platform for to continue the museum missions and programs using online programming is another challenge for many museum workers, believe it or not. <laughs> Sad truth, but that's the truth at the moment. Not all are capable. So not all slum museums um, were able to easily upgrade and proceed with this kind of technology. And the worst part is the anticipation of possible budget cuts once all this is over. Because truth is, um, we are the least priority in the hierarchy of prioritizations of our modernization. So that. But we also realize that cultural mapping is essential, if only with maps. So this is one good example. Binian has a museum, and they did their cultural mapping last year. And because they did their cultural mapping, they were finished the entire um, mapping their cultural heritage, tangible and intangible. So now they've been very active in pursuing an online festival. I still don't know how they're going to do it, but they've been promoting it. So it's an online festival that they will initiate because they do cultural mapping. So that is for Binyan. We have yet to see what's going to happen after that. So some of our members um, post their concerns. Survival really is the main issue here. More than anything else, that's the priority. Food, safety, physical, mental health. So that's what's happening. Some people from Rizal, some of our members also have noted that a lot of their Mabayans, um, especially those from the upland, have been going back to the traditions of doing farming, digging root crops for sustenance. And the, our members from Batangas City, specifically very religious people, still believe that it's their religiosity that's keeping them um, keeping them together at this time of the crisis. There's also this realization, especially those from Cavite, very near Manila, a bedroom city, that open spaces are necessary for many purposes, urban planning, 
um, urban gardening to breathe at least. So those are the realizations that happened because of the pandemic. So that's about it for SLAM. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Uh, a return to farming. That's also what I'm doing right now in the Ovestan. <laughs> right. Right, right. <laughs> but you also raised the important issue of physical, emotional, and mental uh, health during this crisis. Which, uh, Ecom actually came up with an article on, but we can explore that further later. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you, on to uh, Tina Bolao, who is really at the forefront of this in terms of conservation work. We work with a lot of people. And uh, how are you guys doing? Uh, good morning to everyone. Um, well, as you can imagine, like uh, many uh, sectors, no, uh, a lot of people are losing their jobs. Uh, and in fact, um, in the experience of Escuetalier, uh, many of our graduates, I, I could probably count more than 30, uh, have actually lost uh, income because of the stoppage of projects. Um, like, for example, our projects in, in Ampla, uh, Malate Church, uh, are at a pause right now. So as you can imagine, no work, no pay is the norm for our Jewish. Um, and that's uh, also for us, it's not a as a foundation. Um, with this pandemic, uh, we can expect that um, budgets uh, and uh, even for public and private sector initiatives will also shift. As mentioned earlier, this shift will be towards healthcare, etc. So less priority will be given to training school like Escolatelier and we are, um, while we remain to be uh, reliant on government funding, we are also vulnerable and uh, that affects um, our, our ability or our capacity to train and even to implement uh, our learn by doing projects. So us, it's also difficult right now because uh, we need to ask the question, how do we continue to remain relevant uh, so that public-private sector will continue also to support our, our training activities and our projects, which I think was already uh, recognized by government anyway, that uh, we need to continue um, giving job opportunities uh, to people. So in a way, uh, we, what is required of us is to re reprogram uh, our activities and even reprogram how we will continue to train. So for Escuela, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a big challenge as well. Uh, in, because of that context that I, I was just describing earlier. That's it. 
Thank you very much, Tina. I can just imagine all the expertise of your students and the graduates. It would be a real yes. shame if we lose them all because of this and, how the, and all the good work that they do to restore buildings scientifically uh, right. across the country. Uh, you brought up the issue of uh, how to sustain and let's talk about the economy and money with uh, Victor, the robbing Venida. Um, any, any silver line here? How are, uh, what's, what's your fearless forecast? As I stated, the audience is not here. Uh, okay, so good morning everybody. And uh, the only thing I'd like to be discussing today is something which I already mentioned in uh, a paper I wrote back in 1999. This was during the Asian financial crisis, and it seems all of a sudden quite relevant to, to this day. My argument at the time is my main concern being the preservation of heritage buildings heritage structures and the like. And the argument at the time was based upon research and the like. The main factor that caused the destruction and the demolition of a lot of heritage buildings, heritage districts throughout the world has been real estate speculation. Most especially since many of the heritage buildings are located right at the centers of cities. And we're talking also of cities with a lot of business activities going on, okay? financial activities, commercial activities, and the like. And the heritage buildings are all located right there in city centers. The very location itself is very, very attractive for the construction of bigger buildings and the like. And that really cost a lot of the destruction of many old buildings, old districts, and the like in many, in, throughout the world. And as it turns out, it did happen in the Philippines, okay? Um, since the past uh, 18 years, they say from year 2001, the economy has been growing and growing and growing. That's the longest period in our history, the economy always having positive growth. And that's why we had a lot of real estate investment entering into the picture, which caused really the demolition of huge numbers of our heritage structures and the like. Eric Akpedona had their own research there. They're able to make an inventory of the old buildings in Manila and keep track of which of those old buildings were lost through demolition since the year 2000. Right now, given that there is a global recession, because of the pandemic, we can expect that real estate speculation would be moderated. It could be in the next couple of years. Okay? It's because I guess those people who have the money to engage in the purchase of real estate and their demolition, they don't have that money yet. And there is no clear pattern when the economy will start being very, very attractive once more for business activities that would require huge spaces, which would mean constructing new buildings and possibly 
having its buildings constructed in those areas where you have heritage structures, so they could then be demolished. Therefore, I would say that in the next couple of years, that would be an opportune time to once more keep track of where our heritage buildings are and see and research on ways of adaptive reuse. But the other thing is that we would therefore need to become perhaps much more actively involved in lobbying with local governments to work at trying to get more of the construction of new buildings in other places. So we're talking here also as well of urban planning. And part of the urban plan here you see is that they need to provide for spaces for the construction of infrastructure like electric power lines, water lines, telecom lines, sewer lines, and like that can have very real physical implications on heritage buildings, heritage structures, and the like. So this is just what I could see happening as the effect of the current pandemic. It means that we can still keep some of those buildings. It's an opportunity right now to see what can be done in terms of the adaptive reuse of these buildings and in terms of convincing LGUs to work out their urban plans so that new developments can be located somewhere else and these heritage districts preserved. Okay, so more or less that would be it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You brought up a very good point. Although we're all locked down here and it is a very difficult time for many of us who are working in the heritage industry and allied industries, it's also buying time for our resources. Um, to talk more about it, maybe Eric Apidono, you would like to share your insights on this. You have done extensive uh, mapping of Manila and in Bohol. How is, uh, how is it for you? Well, I would like, first of all, to uh, confirm what uh, Bobing just uh, told us, that indeed there's a massive uh, speculation ongoing, which may now have to slow down a bit, hopefully a little bit longer. Um, it is indeed true, we did do a very intensive survey of heritage structures in Bohol, but more importantly in Metro Manila from 2008 until well, pretty much the present, because it never really ends. But basically in the years from 2008 to 2012, uh, we recorded a total of about 3,400 historic buildings throughout Metro Manila. And uh, there was also a similar, well not similar, there was another study done in 2002 by Mia which uh, concentrated on certain districts of Manila. And uh, we got hold of this uh, study, we built upon it, and it gave us the chance to actually see how much has been lost in the time from 2000, when Mia did her photo documentation, and 2008 when we started our extensive survey, which also included documentation, photographs, interviews, and the likes. Uh, just to give you an idea to illustrate what Boeing just said, uh, in those eight years, only eight years, alone in Quiapo, 27% of buildings were lost, of historic buildings. In uh, districts like San Nicolas, about 10%, also in Santa Ana, and we are talking only about a 10-year, an 8-year period. The economy has been booming after 2008, 
pretty much until today. And those figures, probably you can easily add another 50% to them in each district by now. So the loss caused by speculation, caused by redevelopment, is indeed breathtaking. It seems to be accelerating rather than slowing down. So in that regard, indeed, the current uh, slowdown may be a little window of opportunity, <clears throat> a breathing space to perhaps now get our foot down before there's nothing left to do. Uh, so far about that. Cara? Okay, thank <clears throat> you very much, Eric. Um, we'll explore this uh, idea in, a, in the second part of our discussion. Uh, moving on to Claudia, uh, as a historian and uh, a Filipino intellectual abroad, how has this uh, pandemic impacted your community and how has uh, traditional indigenous systems or knowledge helped you uh, or your, your community cope, if at all? Thank you very much, Kara, and I want to say good morning to everybody. So I also thank, would like to thank the Nayong Filipino Foundation for inviting me to be part of this dialogue. So to be honest, getting used to this kind of virtual setup sometimes makes me forget that I'm not in Manila, or really. So, yeah. so um, the COVID-19 pandemic paralyzed many sectors. So it limited our mobility, which consequently impeded our access to culture generally. We were left with empty heritage sites. We canceled many, many cultural events. School and office closures, suspended site works, and so on. So this is not isolated in the Philippines alone. Every, everybody in the world experiences this. So in short, the, the cultural workforce were immobilized in some in which some are unable to make meets end to make ends meet sorry the impact of this pandemic is still being felt across in all aspects economic political social and of course cultural so as i let me reiterate what chen said a while ago this pandemic directly affected our fundamental right to access culture and following that it the vulnerability and the financial shocks and the of social rights of creative professionals, artists, and everyone who depend on culture for living. It also should be pointed out that special attention should be given to our IT, our local artisans, freelancers, our daily wage earners, the project base, and our contractual work workforce, who regrettably are not beneficiaries of most social benefits offered by our regular employer. So um, these unfolding COVID crisis risks magnifies the vulnerability and the inequalities present among the cultural sector. So for the time being, various sectors of the government, along with the non-government, the civil society organizations, and the private institutions are monitoring the impact and is trying their best to somehow assess the scale of the COVID-19 disruption to our culture, arts, and heritage sector. So this is often conducted online surveys, uh, virtual webinars and meetings like this, you know, sector-specific temperature checks. But some aspects of our culture and heritage sectors can be quantified, while other facets are really hard to, um, to gauge. So thinking of that, um, the question now is, how can we think of an appropriate and holistic response 
that is inclusive and fair without compromising the other you know, relevant or important facets of culture. So, um, in short, as things stand now, the apparent issues brought by this COVID-19 health crisis are primarily related, but not really limited, to three major concerns, as I've observed, because I don't have right now the, the local context, the Philippine context. So, as I've uh, been attending many lectures in the past and listening to what other, pe uh, other people said a while ago, so first, it's basically the loss of revenue, be it for tourism industry, the arts and trade industry, ongoing conservation um, site works had been halted, and the performing sector, of course. And it really you know, affected their financial capability and financial, um, uh, uh, their financials. So second, the social security of the cultural workforce. So um, of course, it's it's really uh, common to us that you know people are are earning. Um, sometimes it's based on their um, project. Sometimes it's based on the day-to-day -day basis. So it's it really something that alarms us. So we should do something about it. And lastly, the continuity of cultural heritage work. How do we keep it going anyway? So eight weeks since the initial pronouncement of the community quarantine in the Philippines, we have witnessed numerous responses from different sectors, most of them successfully managed to migrate into a virtual online space. For instance, yeah, like I mentioned a while ago, these webinars and on, online lectures and the free streaming of films and um, performances, online concerts and so on. However, it is also important to keep in mind that not all who belong in the cultural or the arts sector can continue to convert their work online. So in fact, not everyone have the means to connect in the internet. So take for instance, the technical workers and the specially skilled artisans, they needed to be present on the site. They needed to, you know, produce something. So how are we going to support them? So I think those are the major key points that I've observed in the past and, you know, getting um, uh, news, getting um, many news um, from the different parts of the world. Of course, I think this is not our problem alone. It's the problem of the world. And of course, we need to do something and we need to think of something, something long-term, something holistic, and at the same time, fair for the cultural producers. I think that would be my take on how the, how the COVID-19 impacted our heritage. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. This is really a problem that we cannot solve alone. We need to get models uh, and study examples, not just um, in the region, but also internationally. And maybe UNESCO National Commission has some ideas uh, on how we could possibly move forward. Raji, your thoughts? Yes, yes, Ms. Kair. Um, thank you very much. Um, as I listened to the thoughts and also the insights of our um, co-research speakers, I think they also reflect what UNESCO is doing and what what uh, what UNESCO has taught or has collected over all of over all its consultations. So I will be sharing with you. I prepared a short presentation, which actually summarized or somehow summarized all the discussions as well that you've been discussed. Because as we all know, um, these experiences are not unique in the Philippines, as Ms. Claudia already said, um, but. Just to have, um, just to have, like, to give, uh, to give figures as well. 
on on how the globe the cultural landscape in the globe at the global level is being affected and I'll be presenting to you this presentation so there um from all the experiences and all the insights at the local level we can say that um we're actually experiencing a cultural emergency according to assistant director general for culture Ernesto Otone Ramirez because at this moment um 89% of all world heritage properties um are partially or totally closed museums and other cultural institutions as what our previous speaker has um uh shared with us are losing millions in revenue each day artists all around the world are unable to make ends meet and even um, the confinement measures due to the pandemic have interrupted living heritage practices and expressions and have curbed populations access to cultural heritage as what the Ivetans have experienced. And somehow at the, at the Davao region, but it's a different case for the Subanen. The repercussions of the restrictions are also major for the intangible cultural heritage which with the festivals and cultural events being canceled or postponed. So like in, like in the experience of the Subanans, for example, in Japan, um, they would not conduct the Yamahoko float procession in Kyoto, which is being conducted since the ninth, ninth century. So just because of the COVID pandemic, they, are, um, they will not conduct this um, festival. Also in Zambia, um, which they also canceled all their their festivals which are connected in uh in the rivers and with the nature and celebrating the the harvest um the harvest and also um in Botswana the earthenwares uh pottery are being produced but because of the limited access to um economy and also to market um they are not losing a lot of a uh, lot of income. So, as Miss Claudia already mentioned, the impact is social, economic, and political, and it really affects the fundamental right to access to culture, and the social rights of artists and creative professionals, and the protection of diversity of cultural expressions. However, it also accelerated the dig digitization and online consumption of cultural content creating new and unprecedented challenges for the diversity of cultural expression. So as of, um, we've mentioned, um, one of the speakers mentioned that they're having problems in terms of um, how to convert their, um, their trainings online and how to make it more accessible to the general public. And if the, and if the private and the public sector will still sponsor or give or will still support them. To answer the second question which is how the how are indigenous knowledge systems and or knowledge systems and practices enabling communities to cope with the pandemic or what is the role of culture in community resilience so we know that at this point that people really need culture and it makes us resilient and give us hope because of we all know um so a lot of uh, movies and theater productions are being streamed online and it makes us sane but at the same time, uh, because it reminds us that we are not alone, that we are part of the community. But we, have, we also have to remind ourselves that major crises throughout history have often given rise to renaissance of culture. 
and an explo explosion of new forms of creativity so vital for human progress. So, so um, if you've seen the meme or the information that, for example, that Leonardo da Vinci has explored this kind of, we're able to find out uh, um, the solutions for particular um, problems and even create and be productive artistically, then actually we are doing it as well. And so, living heritage can be a source of resilience in such difficult circumstances as people continue to draw inspiration, joy, and solidarity in practicing their cultures. So, living heritage with its wide array of local knowledge on sustainable use of resources is providing new ways to enhance and sustain livelihood in times of crisis as it is dynamic in nature and has the capacity to adapt and evolve. Like, for example, in Palau, um, they are promoting local businesses in tree planting in fisheries for conservation and as advised by the elders of the community. And similarly, here the, um, it was mentioned that the Filipinos are going back to farm or traditional farming. Same in Dominican Republic. The government is encouraging backyard traditional gardening to tackle food insecurity and maintaining local traditions of gardening and cuisine. In Colombia, Costa Rica and Jamaica, there has been a resurgence in interest in traditional recipes using local ingredients. Also in Lebanon, there is an increased interest in a return to traditional organic farming, particularly among young people. So it's similar to us. And many communities around the world have found digital solutions to share intangible cultural heritage in accordance with social distancing measures. Like for example, in Czech Republic as well, um, they organized the Prague Spring Festival to be celebrated in virtual form. And there are also um, a lot of elements of intang intangible cultural heritage which are being adapted in the context of the pandemic to support the public health responses like, for example, in Sri Lanka, they utilize their traditional strong puppet drama to tell stories of confinement and social distancing. Similarly, in Laos, um, the traditional arts and Ethnology Center reports that effigies are appearing in the countryside, hanging the fences of homes to protect against COVID-19 and as a sign of confinement. In some cases, um, people are responding by creating new rituals. In Europe, people upload healthcare workers at the same time every night for their tireless service and teddy bears appear in windows for children to point out along walks around the neighborhood. So in here we can see that what we are experiencing now has its negative, and uh, we we are experiencing, of course, a lot of challenges. But at the same time, it's it um it opens us a lot of possibilities. And as already mentioned before, um, this would be the time for us to rethink um heritage conservation in the Philippines as well as to protect as well the um the welfare of our cultural workers. Okay, thank you, Raji. And before we move on to our next uh, segment, uh, may I ask Attorney Gilier to share how the community in Intramuros is uh, affected and dealing with this uh, pandemic? Uh, good morning, everyone. Am I coming in clear already? Yes. Okay, so I believe everyone has spoken and uh, same result and the impact is the same as well in Intramuros. So everyone has spoken regarding the impact on service delivery 
get access to goods and services. Um, let me just highlight as well, and I think Claudia raised this, the impact as well on uh, governance. So there is indeed a slowdown in terms of the different government agencies that are that is in charge of implementation and execution of uh, cultural and heritage programs and policies. So whereas the program before was to be for the implementation and execution of uh, programs on heritage, there is now a shift towards assistance of uh, cultural workers during this uh, crisis. So it again raises the gaps in terms of uh, the vulnerabilities of the sector. So in terms of the impact on the intangible heritage, this we can see already, and one of the speakers also raised this, that uh, a lot of the scheduled festivals and other uh, events that are really meant to highlight, again, cultural awareness have all been suspended or canceled for an indefinite So again, there may be a loss of uh, revenues, but um, this should be seen also as an opportunity for the sector to shift into another uh, platform, perhaps, or to reconsider and to reflect on uh, what other ways can be used in terms of establishing the value and uh, uniqueness of the sector. So um, everyone is feeling the, the impact, but uh, the challenge right now is how to uh, shift towards more programs and uh, uh, policies that will be more addressing or that will address the, the uh, pandemic, not just for the current response period, but also during the recovery. Thank you, Attorney Gillier. And I thank you for bringing up uh, topics of revenues, values, because I think what this pandemic is really uh, asking us to do is to ask ask ourselves the question, have we been approaching heritage uh, wrong the past few decades? Um, th there's a question here, how, do, how can we continue, uh, uh, how can heritage continue to be meaningful and relevant amidst COVID-19? But I think this question is loaded with assumptions. First of all, relevant to whom uh, and for what? And I think so much has been raised about lost income, lost revenues. But I think what was also raised, especially by Sir Nestor, was uh, the importance of traditions and how traditions and knowledge systems can actually help us uh, get through the crisis. So I would like to give a put forward to, the, to everyone the question. Um, uh, and anyone is free to respond uh, prior to COVID-19 to whom do you think we have really been uh, relevant to uh, who has heritage as we practiced it prior to this um, pandemic been relevant to and who were the groups that we have excluded uh, in our practice because if we were probably inclusive, as inclusive as we say we are, then we wouldn't really be questioning whether heritage would be relevant in the future. It would be important as if it were air that uh, we were breathing. 
So I don't know if anybody would like to uh, respond to this question. Uh, who are we relevant to? And who are we really perhaps excluding? Uh, and what were our reasons for excluding them in the heritage discourse or practice? Uh, maybe any Sarah? Yes. Sarah, can I offer uh, to be the first? Yes, to please. This yes. Uh, well, of course, I'm speaking in the context of Escuela Talier. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for us, uh, we have been trying to be as inclusive as possible. And in our mindset, uh, it has been the youth all along uh, who, as our beneficiaries, uh, beneficiaries, beneficiaries of our program, is the first and foremost, or in other words, they are at the heart of our training program because we believe that uh, the youth has to own this heritage that we're trying to protect. Um, secondly, our audience has also been the community because uh, again, our mindset also is that conservation is really community-based, which I'm sure everybody in this group and all other uh, uh, people out there who's watching this would agree that uh, it is community-based. Um, of course, this is also a challenge. Uh, how do we um, involve the community in, in all our endeavors? So to me, it's really the youth and the community who are uh, at the heart of, of heritage conservation. Uh, so that's it. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Uh, Cara, yeah. can, can yeah. I contribute to that? Uh, uh, in relation to what Tina just said, it's community-based. I, I agree totally, 100%. Uh, now more than ever, we need to make heritage conservation more practical. Um, I, I just want to share my slides because uh, it answers some, some uh, parts that we've discussed before, but it will emphasize the practicality of heritage conservation. Uh, our, our lockdown has actually brought us or forced us to go back to the usual way of doing things. Like people are now cooking in their homes, using their family recipes, cooking, you know, learning. Uh, hold on. Where is that? Let me just, sorry. Sorry about that. I'll open the slide. It's already open actually. I just need to share. Okay. So um, I'm also talking from my point of view, our family's experience with regards to the lockdown. And uh, people had been sharing a lot of this also online. And now we're discovering uh, we're learning more about what our parents used to know, our grandparents, especially those living in the provinces. For example, this, this kind of plant. Who would ever know that you can eat this plant? When, you know, as far as I could remember, I would just start pulling them from my, from my garden. But somebody posted that you know, it's called pansit-pansit, uh, and now you can actually cook with it. And so we're discovering this interesting knowledge that has been buried for many, many generations, but now they're coming out. So I think that's the, that's the value of this lockdown. And so 
we as as we are now sharing this knowledge we accumulate you know knowledge and now we're sharing it with our family you know at home i think this is really an opportunity now to transfer this kind of information and so also uh certain practices that are now um being diluted or forgotten are, are coming back foraging for example because of lack of food you know people are now starting to be aware of the kind of food that they have all around them like like we we do tree planting in our subdivisions you know we, we the dnr started uh, uh advocating planting trees that you can that bear fruits you know building a a, a, a food forest uh, but then before the lockdown they were just ornaments but after the lockdown you know we see them bearing fruits and now we can harvest from them and make jams you know recipes of our parents it's actually a jam that i made from our mulberry trees so you know we, we are now trying to to bring back these kind of practices that we have forgotten because of the kind of life that we were living pre-covid it was like a fast life you know we have schedules every hour every minute we're doing something else but not doing the things that our parents and grandparents used to do and we are now more aware um eating fresh food so uh i think it's very important now that because of the lack of production of uh, factories so we see the value of that and homemade products I, I have seen like like my my sister in her farm she was locked down in her farm they started making local beer out of turmeric so and there's joy in that and and we have to bring it back the joy of 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 going back to the basics of producing food and and because of this i think there will be an awareness on the significance of crafts of uh, local local uh, production of food uh, we will now be giving importance to the products of local producers and artisans because um, i think eventually being a tourism planner eventually when we have our shots when we have the vaccine we will somehow to a certain extent go back to traveling and the, the gap between then and now is an opportunity for us to to give focus on what the people uh, in the rural areas, in the barangay level, in the sitios, have in store uh, or have have um, accumulated over these years that we have not given importance. We have to focus now more on decentralized regenerative agriculture, and this knowledge actually that are coming back will make us more resilient as as human beings. Before it was just these were just important in the in the province in the rural areas, but now even people in the urban areas are are learning about these things. And so um, I, I think I see the link between cultural heritage, uh, food security, and resiliency. Uh, Pre-COVID, we our family had been had started an urban garden already, but now we see see it more significant, uh, replicating it more as more families are realizing that it's it's better to have food, you know, right beside your house, and 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 because you you can't buy it from the groceries anymore, it can't go out, and even knowledge on seeds. Um, before kids don't even know what a papaya tree is or what's what how does a nara seed look like but now because of sharing uh, online of these things people posting uh, there's like a sense of discovery all of a sudden and i think that will that will help us uh, cope with with this pandemic and bring about a transition where we'll have we will have more uh, awareness awareness uh, that that we can we, we we can we can sustain we need to sustain actually 
Now, um, as to your as to your question regarding um, me meaning, okay, I, I think that because of this uh, knowledge that we have accumulated during lockdown, uh, heritage conservation has to be practical to those people, especially especially those who have been affected, uh, those who ha ha are always or most of the time left out of the value chain. Uh, I deal so much with tourism value chain uh, in all the places that I've, I have been engaged in doing plans or helping communities come up with tourism plans. The value chain is always lopsided, even in Batanes, the value chain is lopsided. The communities, the, the barangays where the, the most amount or volume of heritage are found are left out. They're not earning from heritage. I think this is the time that we need to make that happen once and for all so we can say that heritage conservation is totally inclusive make it practical and make um, heritage um, be connected to the owners of those heritage we cannot have like experts academe just talking about heritage of people in Batanes or Mindanao or any community but let the people in those places talk about their own heritage. I think this is, this is a golden opportunity to do that because we are online. Uh, we just need to make sure that this technology reach the people in the community. So that's my bit of uh, thank you. contribution. You know, thank you very much, Chen we, uh, and Tina for bringing up community because for me, it's really how do we define community? Are these geographic communities? Are these communities of people who share ideas? Like we are all of us here who are into heritage with a quote-unquote converted. Are we uh, a community of interest? And if, our, if we stick to specific silos, then we may be shooting ourselves in the foot. Because as you said, no, we, we need to become relevant. We need to become... Uh, we need a more holistic approach to heritage. For a long time, we've been talking about uh, the economic value. But what about the emotional value? Are we looking into those things? Are we looking at the psychological value of uh, impact of, uh, of heritage? Do we need to go beyond revenue and look at the triple bottom line? Has the practice been such that it's profit but we forget planet and people uh at the end uh maybe um uh, who, who, who brought this up with the museums what are your what are your thoughts on uh, on on this and what might be the reasons for uh, exclusion uh thank you for audience yeah actually yeah. i've been thinking um this is beyond, um, your question is beyond the walls. And the museums are usually enclosed, right? So this is actually beyond the walls. And when, when Ms. Chen was talking and then you posted your questions, I was, there's only one thing in my mind at the moment. It's about cultural mapping. Because cultural mapping is really involving the grassroots communities. And that's, for me, it's something that we, we've started but we failed to do in preparation for a very grave situation like a pandemic like COVID-19 right now. Um, why did I say that? When we do cultural mapping, we map 
tangible and intangible. And of course, every intangible, there's always that intangible heritage aspect to it. And Sir Ness would be, is, is among the person who would be able to talk much about it because we've been working on this cultural mapping together all over the country. And among the most interesting when we do cultural mapping is the intangible of subsistence technology. So when we say subsistence technology, it's actually this very thing that Ms. Chen was talking about how the indigenous people survived and sustained themselves through many generations. So when this, when we do cultural mapping, we involve several levels of communities, not one community alone. So we involve the grassroots, we involve the um, administrators, we involve the academe, the experts, but also we involve the LGUs or the government who are the key persons who can actually make things happen for the entire communities that we are involved in. So it's important that these groups of communities work together to achieve a very specific goal of really pursuing the preservation of our heritage and our traditions. My, my thought is, had we done um, or we did really serious culture mapping activities prior to this and then did... Um, promotions and did probably um, involve community, taught them how to do, how to survive using indigenous knowledge systems, uh, we would have less concerns now on how to sustain our lives given this pandemic. So that's my thought. <laughs> Thank you, Kara. Thank you. Uh, I, I saw Raji and then Eric. Yeah, Raji. Um, I'll just add um, the experience of the Puerto Princesa Subterranean River National Park in safeguarding our natural and even the cultural heritage of the community in which other um, communities may learn from. Um, I think this is one of the best practices currently that we're, um, that's happening in our country. Um, the, for uh, more than 400 um, households have been affected because of um, they stopped already the tourism activities in the area. And, but its protected management office is hoisting its efforts to provide alternative sources of subsistence and income to these affected families. Like you've, um, you, one of the questions is that, is it necessarily, or is it really necessary that we um, put highlight or we, we put premium on, on giving economic subsistence or the economic assistance to these families because it's uh they cannot um they, they would not and they cannot appreciate um the cultural their cultural heritage if they cannot meet their basic necessities so what they did is that they re-strategized their ongoing projects so like they have this yamang bukid which is their project since 2016 and then they distribute um yamang bukid is a um uh, it's a sustainable farming um project and then the excess of this um of the produce are being shared to the communities and then um to the communities who are uh, mostly affected by the covid pandemic so perhaps um also for other organizations they can also do this if they have already ongoing projects to re-strategize it and so that it can also address the needs of the stakeholders that are being affected at the local community. Okay, thank you. Um, Eric, you wanted to say something? 
Eric, then uh, Claudia, then Chen. Eric, you're on mute. Please unmute your microphone. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, I'd just like to share some personal observations that I have made, anecdotal, in the past 14 years that I've been around. Um, to start with, I believe, at least in urban areas, maybe in the rural areas it may be different, but in the urban areas, heritage preservation is still primarily a middle or upper class endeavor and concern. And I would like to illustrate that by some personal experiences. Take, for example, one I had just a few years ago. I was joining a trip of the Museum Foundation to La Loma Cemetery for heritage themes. And uh, as I sat on to the meeting point, which of all places was in Forbes Park, looking for the bus, getting into the bus, finding it, and thinking immediately, my God, I must have gotten into the wrong bus. What are all those European tourists doing here? Well, it turns out they were not Europeans. They were actually Filipinos, upper class Filipinos. And I was certainly by far the most dark skinned among them. So it's still an upper class endeavor, as we like it or not. We haven't been able to engage the working class, the rural folks, into it. Again, I say I can only talk about the urban situation. I may be completely wrong as far as rural areas are concerned. You probably all know Paco Park. You also probably all know, let's say, uh, the parks in central Manila. And uh, for those of you who have been there, you may notice that Paco Park differs from all other parks in Manila in that it is extremely clean, extremely quiet, extremely peaceful. Now, why is that so? Well, Paco Park is one of the few parks in Manila that actually charges an entrance fee. It's a measly 15 pesos, next to nothing, but it basically keeps working class people out. Let me share another uh, observation. When I first came to the Philippines in 2002, I went to many of the museums in central Manila. Uh, for example, National Museum of Anthropology, and I found it very, very deserted. I felt I was the only visitor in there. And if you go to the National Museum today, it's a dramatic shift. The museums are full, at least until before the outbreak of COVID. Very well visited, and not only by middle-class folks, but also by seemingly ordinary working-class people. And why is that so? For the simple reason that the entrance fees have been abandoned. Entrance is free. And it makes a dramatic difference in the number of visitors. Now, in this regard, kudos to the National Museum, to the government, for having realized that, making heritage accessible by removing entrance fees, no matter how small they seem to us, involves the masses of the people, which so far we haven't really gotten on board. So this is the first great step, and I think it should be expanded. That's actually all I wanted to say. Thank you. That's a, that's a good point. No, uh, thank you, Eric. That was a very good point. Once you remove a barrier, in this case, a financial barrier, of the entrance fee, you're able to become more relevant uh, to the to a greater public, and perhaps this public is able to create personal meanings 
uh, and values to this museum uh, and this heritage site. Uh, Claudia then Chen. Okay. Uh, yeah. okay, so um, among the many forms of heritage, so I would like to speak about our built heritage. So the practice of heritage conservation in the Philippines is not perfect. We all know that. It has its own highs and lows. So although our country has endeavored to nurture and protect these cultural heritage resources, in some instances, it has fallen short of finding the appropriate, appropriate solutions to safeguard and to conserve it. So um, looking back, let us ask ourselves, what precedents have been so far? Are we, um, are we taking the, the right direction? So, um, on a positive note, the interest in heritage has grown, especially amongst the younger generations thanks to the power of technology and to the earlier initiatives carried out by various um, cultural organizations and heritage organizations. So um, they, um, it, it made sure an impact in the field of heritage conservation. However, I believe, I personally believe that unless um, the stakeholders, you know, the community and these um, cultural agencies and the NGOs work together to lobby and, you know, to pressure our LGUs to be more proactive rather than reactive and responsive, it will remain the same. So we should, you know, um, raise our voices and, you know, tell, tell and um, never get tired of um, pressuring our LGUs to act on it. So um, heritage as identified through um, conservation and preservation is understood largely architecturally. I am speaking for um, built heritage only. So irrespective of um, its location, built heritage reflects the culture of time of the people who built it. It is a record of our way of life, a collection of tangible examples that tell the story of a Filipino nation. So from the surviving heritage, one can see the colonial influences that affect the Filipino lifestyle, what other cultures have contributed to the nation, and among many reasons why built heritage matters. However, um, these reasons often remain untold and unsaid, and thus unheard by most of the people who stand benefit to, lot, to a lot from knowing it and understanding more of this heritage. So um, in my opinion, the actions and the responses that we're planning to carry out should, yeah, like what Chen and um, Raji mentioned, should be inclusive and of course, uh, we should continue this like further, further this um, pandemic, and um, um, you know, um, heritage is uh, it makes us resilient. It makes it builds our identity, and if we work and think together, we can achieve something. Heritage should be treated as an important facet of governance because we need something that will push it, that that will make it happen. So some, it's really difficult let, to say, oh, we need to do this and we need to do that, but nothing is acting because we need, we really need the government to act on it. And yeah, that's all I can say. And um, thank you, Kara, for uh, lending me time to to air out what I want to say. So that's it. Okay. Thank you, uh, Chen. You wanted to add something? Uh, I wanted to comment on Eric's um, uh, what Eric mentioned. Um, taking out barriers. Um, it may work for built heritage like museums or, or any 
built heritage where you allow people to to come in and see what it has but it's not going to work for communities that have natural and cultural heritage simply because and i'm talking about my based on my experience um let's go to natural heritage for example there is uh, natural heritage is valuable because it is uh, our life support system primarily uh, secondary it's a it's a um, a tourism asset and that's how it's earning that's how you attain the triple bottom line you conserve and then you generate income you plow back to conservation for heritage um my observation is that it's heavy on subsidy it's really government funding you know international organizations funding but uh, we're not generating much from cultural heritage it's more on more on the natural heritage because in the framework of natural heritage conservation the livelihood component is already included there but with heritage conservation i think we we need to do that because you, you cannot allow people to come in and not pay because uh you're talking about real people with real lives daily routine uh, they will not be incentivized or rather motivated to talk to guests coming in and out. They would even be perceived as nuisance in the same manner that there's a community in Batanes that actually perceive tourists as nuisance already because they're not earning a single cent. And um, so tourists are just like uh, causing destruction, causing um, disruption in their, in their daily lives. So you, you talk Cara, about triple bottom line and we call it triple bottom line because it has to be a balance you have to balance uh, achieving those goals the economic social and environmental in fact quadruple bottom line and management and institution you cannot preserve heritage merely by subsidy and now we cannot rely on subsidy anymore because money will be diverted to health and food security but then with food security uh, cultural heritage is linked there so that's one new that we can explore by linking so it can be funded uh, as for other other sectors of cultural heritage we need to be very creative in finding ways by which it can generate income for the community uh, it cannot be free it can never it, it doesn't really work in the field uh, with with natural heritage conservation there is a concept called payment for ecosystem services wherein uh, slowly it's being integrated to, tour to the tourism framework when we make people realize or tourists realize that this attraction is not free this forest is not free it's providing you joy it's providing you knowledge providing you other values you need you need to pay for that you need to you know monetize that for the people protecting that heritage uh, we can actually integrate that kind of kind of thinking or mindset in cultural heritage as well because that's exactly what people are saying in the communities that hindi naman makakain tong heritage natin <laughs> why are we going to preserve this old house hindi naman nayon makakain yan so this is something that we need to think about and slowly integrate in in the way we do things in the coming years uh, I want to clarify. Is it is the interpretation? Is it lost in interpretation? It's easy to see the value is, and to connect the value of natural heritage to my personal life. 
but when it comes to the built environment, the interpretation is lost. Would that be? Yeah. yeah. We haven't yeah, because been able to show or to, for them to feel that it is important to a wider yeah. uh, audience. And that's also the reason why Eric was saying that his observation is that when it comes to built heritage, it's just the elite that would pay for to visit these these sites, not the the, the usual you know uh, people on the street. It's because uh, it's not practical for them. It's not significant for their daily lives. But if you, if you swap that, you find that that integration, it will be significant. On a daily basis, I'm I'm okay. using my heritage on a daily. Basis. I'm using this basket, and I'm earning okay. for I'm demonstrating how to how to make the basket, and oh. guests are paying. You know, something oh. like that. How do we make it? Uh, the two tinas, the tina walang first paterno then Raji. Okay, how do we make it relevant? Okay, um, I agree with Miss Chen, no, uh, regarding the involvement of um let's say the, the, the lower class society, I hate to use that term, but <laughs> just for, to, for it to be clear. Uh, um, in fact, uh, since its inception, uh, Escuela Talier uh, has uh, been a, really a marriage of two solutions to the problem of poverty and heritage conservation. So the two solutions uh being the youth uh and and i'm talking about youth training uh of uh the out of school youth or the people coming from the indigent uh backgrounds um and they get to heritage conservation creates jobs so this is marrying the two the two where you you give uh the youth from indigent families the capacity to intervene and protect heritage. So for me, this is one way that we involve um, indigent uh, families uh, so that we are able also to end poverty. So it now becomes uh, something that not just involves the elite, but actually you are bringing in another set of actors who could find livelihood in heritage conservation. So there, there's a big value in that alone. So that's why this is something that Escuela Talier has been advocating all these years. And in advocating that, uh, we really think that uh, there has to be a continuance in this kind of direction. Um, but if, you know, as I said earlier, it's difficult now because of course, um, the public sector, the private uh, sector would rightly focus now their, their, their resources in healthcare or in, as uh, mentioned earlier, in food, etc. All the uh, necessary services. But we also have to remember that uh, giving jobs is also something that is necessary. And I think this is one way that we can address uh, this gap between heritage and uh, people, the masses, etc. So th that's just my take on it. 
that's a good point, no? Because they may not have entered into heritage because of the aesthetic value of it, but they were able to create new meanings that were exactly. relevant to them, and they're able to share these new meanings with their families who probably didn't have heritage on the radar. Tina Paterno, you wanted to say something. Yeah. So to answer the question, how can we make heritage more meaningful? What did we do wrong in the past? What can we learn? Um, I want to, my, my inference from the group is that involve local communities. Yes, double check. Um, and to answer Kara's question of what is community, I think local. Keeping it local is probably the most sustainable way. My, my dream, my peg is Kiapo Church, right? There's no one who said this should be preserved. It's in no danger of not being transmitted to future generations. It has a whole set of many different values, and it's a very, very local set of you know values valuable to the community i think where we've gone wrong in the past is a we're preaching to the choir b we're not so creative in reframing our narratives we're just saying it over and over again and to the same people um so if we had better narratives a better interpretation that's closer to home that's more aligned with local attributions of importance and values, I think there must be some answer there. Um, I think what we did wrong, I think the framework, the infrastructure of heritage evolved piecemeal as it usually does in countries, uh, but now needs a tighter framework for designation, protection, and integration into life. And one that is more inclusive of local communities. I just like to say the word inclusion as someone who has practiced from the outside always. I wish there was a better word for inclusion because it connotes kind of an outside in a very top down thing. So the strength of Ecomos is through its members. So I've taken the liberty of asking an archaeologist who's not representative here represented here on um, what he what his answer to this might be um, he says collaboration among local indigenous and other stakeholders provides a venue for inclusive co-production of knowledge it's not just inclusion it's co-production as such the shift to greater engagement has also transformed research practices in the asia pacific region because of the realization that involving stakeholder communities results in meaningful research outcomes. Particularly, a growing number of investigations are dynamically seeking the involvement of communities, not just as mere contributors, but also as active and involved participants in the research. This undertaking humanizes our community partners and counters the exclusivity often associated with the authority of scholarship. There's an increasing number of scholars whose approach to research can be considered as an interdisciplinary cross-nations, cross-ethics, and the realization that we're no longer alone. And I think staying local, and this is me speaking, not Stephen, uh, staying local, especially in a 7,000 plus plus island nation, is the solution because someone in one island may not necessarily care so much what's happening on the other island or what they value. 
it becomes what is important to me here. And once you hit that, I think a lot of other chips will fall into place. They will protect it. It won't be a top down, it'll be a sort of local and very organic. And I think moving towards the very thin narrative of names, dates, and single attributions of why it's important, moving towards a richer and more relevant narrative and interpretations that are closer to home is, is the solution. You know, I, I just want to make a, uh, <laughs> a comment, no? Uh, and I don't know what the other songs will think about it. I totally agree with what you said, uh, keeping it local, but there's, isn't there also a fine line between this is my heritage, yeah. okay? And uh, how do we create opportunities for outsiders to also have, create their own meanings? Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, we can't, each 7,000 islands can't go at it alone, <laughs> totally alone. Yeah. Uh, Sir Nestor uh, is uh, raising his hand. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm just reminded of some lessons I learned from the indigenous peoples. I'd like to stress that I agree to all the ideas presented, but I would like to highlight three uh, concepts. No? Diversity, community, and connectivity. Now, the people in Sarangani Island, the Blaans and the Maruri, would respond differently to the COVID pandemic than to the people, the Subanans in the highlands huh, near the forest spread fringes. Uh, I would say that diversity could, could usher in finding different pathways to resiliency and self-sufficiency. But as, as emphasized by the different uh, uh, colleagues, no, self-sufficiency and resiliency Resiliency should be the goal of heritage conservation. How would I say that? Now, uh, we live in the rural, urban, and highland continuum. And so we different, uh, different settings would determine different strategies, constituencies, and convergences. Now, uh, I would like to be reminded of what uh, Dr. Chomson has said. No? And now is the time that we are threatened by a pandemic. Our survival is threatened. But Nick uh, Johnson says that the survival of the Filipino nation depends upon the survival of the indigenous. Because the indigenous and self-sufficiency and resiliency has always been pro proven throughout. No? But the, the, the indigenous communities like the Subanans that have worked with are also threatened beyond COVID. There are three C's no? at hand. Conflict, community health, and connectivity. I would say conflict is always there. Uh, I am worried now of the, uh, if uh, there would be a chance of massive Remigration back to Mindanao and encroachment into the ancestral domains no? that would lead to more conflict aside from the armed conflict that is also escalating. Now, the COVID brought about by the commuters also brings in you know, a lot of 
other uh, threats to, to survival. Now, community-based conservation should really look at the survival of the local, I would say. And it's not just surviving economically or with public community health, but also strengthening harmony and cohesion, which is actually the principal value of intangible cultural heritage. And therefore, how do I connect diversity to connectivity? We must learn from the indigenous and the indigenous also learn from those in the coastal lands, but they are not connected, especially now, that there is restriction in travels and restriction in contacts. Much more, those in the highlands are neglected you know, with the adage of the last mile first in terms of internet connectivity. They, are, they really are not into it. And therefore, we lose a lot of wisdom and insights how they cope with the day-to-day -day situation, especially now with the pandemic. And uh, we were discussing with the tourniquet that perhaps this is really time that we can use technology, uh, digital technology, you know, to improve connectivity by installing point-to-point -point connectivity to other communities so that voices of diverse people can really be heard and lessons can really expand. Like has been said of knowledge generation, knowledge generation in different contexts and different settings. Daghang uh, salamat. Daghang salamat. Actually, there's a question from the audience from uh, Ian Morley. I'm not sure if this has already been partially answered. How can heritage be used as part of post-COVID-19 recovery? And the second question is, how can LGUs use heritage as part of the rehabilitation of people's emotional, physical, and financial well-being? Um, I think part of this has already uh, been uh, addressed. If anybody, would anybody want to add anything to what has already... Uh, Eric, yes? Uh, Eric, you're on mute. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I'd like to add a brief comment or again observation to what has been discussed in the past 10 minutes, talking about involving the community. I guess we can all uh, agree that it is important to involve the community, right? However, the involvement of the community rests on the perhaps optimistic assumption that the community is actually interested in heritage preservation, which is not always the case. Or if it is the case, it may be misguided. Let me give you an example. When we did our inventory of anchor cell houses in Bohol in 2006 and 2007, we came across a few hundred of them, we interviewed them. I remember visiting one interview. There was this owner of an old house around 1900, and she said, yeah, she really loved the house. She inherited from the parents. She really adores it, and she wants to restore it. We were very happy. Until we asked her, what does she mean with restoration? She means, well, I want to replace all those rotten wooden walls with beautiful concrete. I want to replace the old uh, roof with GI sheets and make it really a nice house. So 
guidance. Be careful uh, if you might uh, get what you wish for. Take another example of vegan, which uh, came to the forefront in the 1990s. But when experts from Manila went there, or not only Manila, but primarily from Manila, went there, the community was not at all interested in preserving the houses. They wanted what they considered progress. And it needed a lot of involvement of outsiders to actually turn the mood around in vegan and open the local community towards the idea of preservation, which initially was rejected as another imposition from Imperial Manila. Last but not least, uh, coming back to Bohol, I also remember vividly a conversation we had with one of the mayors on the plane going to Bohol, who we asked what his community was actually interested for. Obviously, they were interested in development and progress, and we asked him, so when you ask around your people what they were actually longing for, what is it? They said, well, first and foremost, they want a shopping mall. So I warned against uh, assuming a priori that local communities are always interested in the way of heritage as we understand it, as urban middle-class urbanites. Thanks, God. Thank you, Eric. I think that's exactly it, no? How do we define community? Because I would think that the real estate developer should be part of the community because the heritage cannot exist in silos. We are, we are in an urban landscape or a cultural landscape. And how do we bridge all these uh, interests? We still need uh, your issue of um, replacing the, the, the wood no? uh, on the house or, or the roof. It raises the question of authenticity. It's important to uh, the expert uh, or the practitioner, but for the resident, it may not be as uh, important. Whose uh, whose opinion do we go with? Uh, Attorney Gillier would want to share something. Thank you, Kara. I just would like to respond to Ian's question. I think it's a good question in terms of preparation uh, of plans. Um, government right now is basically preparing uh, uh, covering that and I think it, now is the best time to see that the heritage, cultural and heritage sector must be involved in the planning process as well. But uh, to do that and to lay value to the question of how the local government units can use and see uh, the meaning of heritage in terms of their preparation and covering plan. Uh, there are several premises that we need to establish. One is that heritage must continue to be seen as a cohesive factor for the community. So it can contribute to the cohesion in terms of the community's common good, and it can also be collectively uh, seen as a collective uh, means to define the community itself. So that's meaning and identity. So, um, so and to just to sort of uh, uh, tie in also the, the basic premises laid uh, by Jen also. Um, she raised the interesting question of the interesting fact of uh, going back to the basics. And that messaging of going back to the basics actually emphasizes the sort the value of meaning and identity. So it's not just going back to the basics as we see it, it's actually going back to the basic of where we stand, uh, going back to the basics of uh, cultural heritage and its meaning and identity. 
So the challenge here basically right now is how, what will be the basic messaging? What's the messaging that we should be adopting to the different uh, stakeholders, whether it be the local government unit, whether it be the community itself. So it should be the messaging should be perfectly clear, concise, that they see the value and meaning of uh, heritage. So unless they see that, it will be difficult to integrate or uh, ensure the convergence of uh, culture and heritage into any recovery. Thank you, Julier. Um, Claudia, you wanted to say something? So um, in response to uh, Professor Morley's question, so um, as I um, mentioned a while ago, you know, this, this COVID-19 pandemic and health crisis really highlighted, you know, the, the problems that have been existing way, way before even pre-pandemic um, period. So it made us realize that, oh, these artists have been displaced for a very long time and they've been sacrificing a lot and, you know, it, 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 we needed to like um, wait for this. We need not to wait for another pandemic in order for us to, you know, perfect or um, correct what we made, what we did wrong in the past. So, um, in in order to do that, we need to improve and we need to really um, strengthen our law, particularly the echo, you know, the past um, discussion of the Heritage Conservation Society about the, the encounters and the experiences of implementing the RA-166. We have to do a lot of things. We have to amend it in order for us to um, somehow um, increase the protection and um, make stringent guidelines and um, measures in order to protect these heritage sites. So I think um, unless we... we uh, really help each other. You know, um, I've been seeing um, some comments that um, there are a presence of local government and as, as, as well as um, non-government non organizations working together. I think it's a good sign already. And then um, what we need to do now is forward um, our thinking, our way of thinking, and address these possible, um, uh, these potential problems and loopholes that the law possess. So, of course, we need to, you know, penalize, you know, whoever violates the law. That's the, the best way in order for us to protect our, our heritage, be it natural heritage or cultural heritage, immovable or movable. So um, um, as part of the post-COVID recovery, you know, we, we realize our um, shortcomings, what we did wrong in the past. So I think we can use it as a springboard in order for us to develop new tools, new guidelines, and also to realize as well that the community can do something about it, that the community can act on it, even though they are restricted, you know, even they're um, confined in their personal spaces. Um, people are very resourceful. And with that, I think um, that's the, the best response that we can do. Let's move forward. And at the same time, let's not dwell on our past mistakes and make, make these mistakes our learning lessons in the future. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Claudia. Uh, definitely lots of lessons. Working with communities, finding narratives to make it relevant, reaching out to people who were unintentionally excluded, trying to find ways to make it relevant to them, 
learning from our indigenous brothers and sisters and them also learning from us. So I think it's really opening up more channels for dialogue, cooperation, and meaning-making uh, with regards to heritage. There's a, there's a comment here before we move on to the next uh, part of the discussion. This is, this is already uh, not... Uh, I totally agree with Madame Chen's insight on the danger of making heritage conservation participation absolutely free. Apart from our operational costs, this is related to the issue of fair remuneration for the works of our cultural workers and conservationists, as well as artists. Sites, particularly those that espouse our natural heritage, may encounter sustainability issues in the long run. So uh, thank you for that. Um, I'm not sure who, who, it's, who it's from. It's, it's from you, Raji. Okay. It's from Raji. Pinahirapan mo pa ako. Reading. Reading it. Okay. Um, the next question that uh, we were asked to uh, address is um, with regards to the conservation practice and issues of uh, authenticity, sustainability moving forward. There's actually a question from the audience. Uh, uh, directed particularly to, I don't know which Tina, uh, Tina uh, Bulaong. Tina, how can built heritage be funded if restoration will now, uh, now be assigned to a lower rung in priorities? How can EP training be put to use if there are no projects? Mm. Okay, so I have been reading that question a while oh. ago. <laughs> uh, thanks for giving me a chance to, to respond to it. Uh, I believe the question for, is from uh, Ms. Tats Manahan. Tats Manahan. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so to answer Ms. Tats' question about how can built heritage be funded now that, uh, as we've mentioned uh, earlier already, that most likely, uh, heritage conservation will be given a backseat, right? Uh, in terms of funding, etc. So uh, it begs the question: How can Escuela Talier continue training if there's no work for our graduates later on? Because there's there are no projects. Um, and uh, this is, in fact, uh, a question that we've been asking ourselves in the past 11 years uh, since we've uh, started operating. How can we become relevant? Uh, because uh, we've already anticipated uh, that this will become a sustainability issue for us. Uh, if there's no restoration project, there are no jobs for our trainees. So who would give us money to train? Uh, so this is why uh, we've thought that we need to evolve uh, and be able to respond to current needs. Uh, we're not even planning for responding post-COVID. We are going to respond to 
current times now what are we going to do now so that our graduates uh, are able to maintain their employment and uh, one of the things that we've thought of is that our projects would have to shift uh, like for example uh, we thought of uh, in terms of adaptive reuse of heritage structures Maybe the use has to have a relationship with healthcare, for example, so that uh, the projects now uh, that involves a heritage structure uh, also involves health care or other services that are needed or related to healthcare. So that, that's uh, that's how we're thinking about it now. Although, of course, these are uh, requiring some reprogramming on our part. Uh, but in the context of training, Escuela Talier has already uh, developed its own protocols and policies regarding how we will actually train. Uh, because, of course, this will require uh, you know uh, observances of social distancing etc it's not going to be the same as how we will be teaching um, in the academe or you know in school in regular schools like in high school grade school even college we are talking about a technical vocational training center and that uh, will require being there face to face. So we've already developed our, our policies for that. Uh, this is uh, talking about a new normal in how a technical vocational school will be able to train and uh, also giving into consideration uh, or taking into consideration the fact that our training is through the learning by doing method which means we are also at the construction sites so what will be the new normal in a construction site uh, particularly in a restoration site so these are things that we've already considered um, I, I don't need to detail it what are these policies etc but uh, it's going to be in place uh, but the question remains, will government or private sector support projects related to heritage? But unless uh, the, 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 the project is related to health and the needed services, then we would have lesser chance of, uh, of getting such projects. So that's, that's, I hope I answered uh, Ms. Pat's question. <laughs> thank you. Hope so too. Uh, thank you, um, Tina. Uh, there's a question here, no? and I think this is already touched on by um, Chen in her presentation uh, earlier. What are the risks to heritage that this COVID-19 has uh, exposed? Uh, the physical to the physical structures um and i think mom Cesa also touched on this you know? how resilient are our heritage structures our cultural institutions in dealing 
with uh, crises. So this is not an earthquake, this is not a flood, but it's probably affecting our buildings in another way. And what can we do to ensure that uh, these buildings are protected um, at this time? What could, would anybody like to? I think uh, ECOMOS Philippines, uh, Tina Paterno, um, was the, was part of a DRRM program. Uh, several was was a pandemic ever in the equation. We did not count pandemics as part of the equation. We were looking at um, physical vulnerabilities, earthquakes, mm -hmm. tsunamis. Um, yeah, pandemic not part of the equation. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Chen. Uh, I th well, we know that the the virus affects people, not structures. But what we need to be worried about is if we start losing our experts because of the, this disease. We've seen it in the medical profession. We're, we're losing doctors. Every month there will be like news of these doctors, experts in their field, they're dying from this disease. And there are more doctors, specialists in the medical field than there are heritage conservationists. So we have to be very careful when we start going out again because there's very few of us. So that's, that's one thing that I'm concerned about with regards to the, the risk element of this. Uh, uh, in my work, for example, uh, I, I, part of my job is to conduct consultations with communities to get primary data you get their insights their fears or whatever i don't know how i'm going to do that when when we resume I'm, I'm the only light at the end of the tunnel i'm seeing is when we get the shots we may relax a bit when we get that confidence to go out to get in the field and do the things that we used to do because it's not going to be as effective if we don't do it the way that we should be doing it uh, I, I cannot I cannot do remote planning. I cannot be like a, an armchair planner. I have to be there, right there on, on site. We're having a tough time now with, with my site planner because we're doing a site development plan for a uh, community in Surigao. And she, she lost the chance to go to the site because of the lockdown. And so we're having a tough time, you know, explaining to her, even if we show her pictures, videos, she, she is having a hard, hard time, you know, conceptualizing what needs to be there. So there's a limit as to what we can do as, as field workers, especially those who are uh, who have sites to work with. Um, so there, um, as for my field, tourism, uh, since tourism is one of the most affected sector in the industry, it is also the sector that will bring us back. Because when we, people start to travel, then we will have people on sites, on heritage sites, communities will start earning you know our, our professionals will again have income and they will go back to their jobs so um my hope is that this doesn't last that long this new normal that we're talking about will not last, last that long that when we get the vaccine we will kind of have that that courage and confidence to go back to the kind of work that we're doing but we still need to be careful that's my that's my take on that. So I guess we all need PPEs when we go back uh, to work in communities. There's a comment here. 
uh, I don't know if anybody wants to respond to it. Despite the excellent ideas and practices that we do in a course coming from our expert physicians, if we do not have the support from our LGUs, especially with our, from our Congress, all these ideas and suggestions, it's all just a dream. Uh, that's a problem. Maybe that's a problem of our industry. We're all dreamers <laughs> that will never come to pass. We don't even have a strong law to protect our heritage unless the government will support the arts and cultural cause. Uh, so what must we do? Okay, before we close, what are, uh, uh, okay, all right, go ahead, Hina, you want to respond first? No, sorry, it wasn't a response. It was actually a question for Attorney Kay and, and all of you, but that might be Relas, I know we're, we're behind. Can I ask a question or shall I give uh, the response to your question? Response first. <laughs> okay. Um, so the question is what kind, sorry, the answer to comment. which question? It's more of a response to a comment from Francis okay. Aina Jr. Um, let, me, let me just read it again. Well, as, as we've all been saying, no, the framework needs readjusting. The system is not so efficient. The system for identification, protection, conservation. Within that framework, however, are there things that we can still do? I think the LGUs also have quite some power with their own budget. And if we start from there, I think things can happen within this, this broken framework. And he says support from our LGU, especially um, through our Congress, all these ideas and suggestions are just a dream. Uh, we don't even have a strong law to protect our heritage. I think the heritage law, which is now 10 years old, has enough teeth, and Kay, please correct me if I'm wrong, has enough teeth to actually send someone to jail for violating that, but we're not. And perhaps that's a question that needs to be answered because we can refine the law however we want and, and make it a really workable law. But if no one actually summons it, uses it, uh, of what use is it really? Just a comment from Eric. Well, just to say something about the effectiveness of the heritage law. Um, yeah, it does provide uh, hefty penalties, including up to 10 years imprisonment for violating certain of its uh, rules. But to my knowledge, this has never happened, and it's unlikely to happen. And by the way, it wouldn't be the solution. Uh, the main drawback to my mind with the heritage law is it hasn't provided for any systematic counter-checking of any demolition or renovation permit vis-a-vis -vis an inventory of presumed cultural heritage. In other words, if you are planning to demolish an old house, it's only the sensibility or knowledge of the local building official that stands between demolition and preservation. And uh, that's the thing, it's not yet codified that every building application or demolition permit is to be cross-checked against a list of structures presumed to be 50 years and older, simply because in many localities there is no such list. Thank you. There's also a response from Cecil and Chen. Yeah, thanks, Kara. This is also in response to the question posted by Francis. 
Mm -hmm. On the um, what was it again? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, despite exile and practices, blah blah blah. Anyway, um, we we go back to the RA one hundred sixty six. There's a law in place, but as we said, there's a lot of um, fine tuning that has to be done. Um, there have been government efforts also to address this concern on how to involve the LGUs with regard our advocacies. In fact, NCCA had, has been very actively working with BILG in involving them on our causes with regard heritage safeguarding. So there have been efforts to um, make tie-ups, several MOUs done, and in fact, the cultural mapping engagements being done by NCCA is one avenue um, to directly involve the LGU in our causes of heritage advocacies and safeguarding. Um, what, what's uh, probably unique about the efforts of the NCCA is that it, it um, highlights the role of each stakeholders with regard safeguarding heritage, grassroots um, involvement, the role of the LGUs, the role of the other stakeholders, the roles of the community. These are very much um, emphasized during MOUs, during the agreements done with LGUs because um, whether we like it or not, sustainability issues, um, I mean the LGUs play greater part in the sustainability issues for our causes. Plus, there's also a beautiful scenario which happened just maybe two years ago when culture became a significant part in the Philippine Development Plan. So the Philippine Development Plan Ambition 2040 specifically highlighted Chapter 7 involving culture as a significant aspect in the development of the Philippines. It's a long shot. We're still on the first steps and a lot has to be done. But we're moving forward at least somehow. Thank you, Kara. Okay, thank you. So we're down to our last 10 minutes. So to close the session, what's the advice? How, any concrete steps? What are the three concrete steps we probably should take uh, to, for our communities, for heritage moving forward? I think it's clear now that uh, working with communities and creating meaning and value, not just economic value, uh, social value uh, as well is uh, important. Would anybody want to add anything before we close? Yeah, I know, I know it's lunchtime. I'm sorry. Uh, Tina, walaong? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, related also to what you've already mentioned. And um, uh, we just as a, a short, uh, brief background, we've uh, talked about this a lot in the in the efforts that we've made towards uh, developing a charter um, that would uh, now carry with it uh, several principles. And um, much of these principles we've mentioned in this discourse that we've we've been having uh, this morning or throughout lunchtime. Uh, and what I wanted to highlight, aside from what you've mentioned, Kara, is the, the importance of education at all levels. Um, because uh, if heritage conservation, history, and culture is included in all our 
in all forms of curricula, then uh, heritage conservation wouldn't even be a question whether LGU will recognize it, whether the grassroots society will, will, uh, will also participate in it, because it will already be a given, you know, in all sectors of society. So I think we all should go back to education, plan it out in the short term, medium term, long term. Uh, so I think that's, uh, it's, uh, it's, that's, it's where we should start. I don't know if everybody agrees, but it's my two cents. Thank you. Final words before we close? Tina Paterno? Can I just add to what Tina said? Yes to education, particularly localized education. I think um, in addition to heritage being taught in schools, um, schools don't talk about their local heritage. So I wonder what the curriculum in Ifugao, you know, what it, is it talking about the stuff in Manila and how relevant is that to them if, if schools would include their immediate environs and how rich that is. I think that would be a great thing to add. Um, so to leave you with words, localize, include in local curriculum schools, co-create better narratives, and find an intersection between the new national priorities of food security, uh, health, and heritage. Chen, uh, then Eric. Uh, I, I think um, the best way to make sure that this is integrated in education in all aspects of our lives is to mainstream heritage conservation to local planning in the same way that disaster risk reduction management has been integrated because LGUs will be forced to put priority on that, to put it, you know, under a, a sector, as a sector during the planning process. Because uh, if it's not included in the local plans, local government cannot shell out funds. That's, that's the, the honest truth to that. Even if they like, even if the national government tells them that it's important to save this building, they will not have funds if it's not in their local plans. So it has to be institutionalized. We cannot simply have a law without the, the system to integrate it in the planning process of all LGUs. Okay, uh, Eric? Uh, yes, uh, totally 100% agree. It has to be part of education, very, very important. But we also have to look at how we teach heritage. And that goes back to the narratives that we have. And the narratives are highly problematic. Uh, I do teach art appreciation at the Ateneo de Manila University. It's a compulsory course for all incoming first and second year students. And uh, I'll ask them around, what is their perception of Filipino heritage? It turns out many of them wouldn't be able to answer this question. What is Filipino? What is our heritage and what is foreign? People have a lot of difficulty accepting, for example, our Baroque churches as Filipino. They have a lot of difficulty connecting our heritage to their Filipinoness. Because it is still often being said again and again, even in Tramuros, that yeah, these are symbols of colonial expression, they were built with forced labor, they are uh, evidence to the subjugation of our forebearers. I mean, just to take uh, Intramuros administration, which is great, but if we look at Intramuros itself, if we look at the 
um, how do you call it? The sound, what do you call it? Sound Museum? Light and Sound Museum, also known as the House of Horrors. And that in the heart of Intramuros, which is basically saying everything that the Spaniards ever did is uh, oppression, violence, murder, everything to be condemned. And there's absolutely nothing to counter that anywhere in Intramuros, other than perhaps now the upcoming new Intramuros Museum. The narratives are negative. And for a lot of people who do not have a deeper interest in heritage or history, and who have only seen the basics, for them, heritage is basically not Filipino, or not really Filipino. There's always this unease. Is it really ours or is it not? Failing to see what makes Filipino heritage unique, especially when you talk about built heritage. Uh, our narratives are highly problematic. Okay. We have two more minutes, Claudia. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'm already. So, so very quickly, so heritage conservation can be understood as a way to make it possible for signposts of culture from the past exist in the present. So it forwards the notion that preserving heritage provides windows to access the past. However, of course, it is uh, based on our uh, conversation in the past two hours, I so, I think. It is equally important to explain why these resources speak of culture. Admittedly, we often to forget that part or sometimes we often to, you know, um, just move forward and think about, oh, yes, this is, and accept it and easily. This is culture, this is heritage, and so on. So um, to explain further or to articulate it, we need the, the help of other professionals, other experts. We need geographers, we need sociologists, we need um, ethnographers, historians to explain us the important the, the importance of culture and to for, for them to you know insert their viewpoint and their own personal lenses in the frame of heritage. So these experts can contribute to a lot to the discourse of heritage, particularly on the cultural theories and how to help people understand the form and the meaning of the of, of heritage. And at the same time, you know, the, the bottom-up approach, people, you know, must must own the heritage. They must, you know, recognize what heritage for them and what heritage for other people as at the same time. So um needless to say, heritage has an immense role in helping shape the meaning of being a Filipino, like just what Eric said. And the growing historical memory consciousness within the public contributes meaningfully to the development of cultural heritage in the Philippines. Whereas heritage is not seen as an important priority of the national government for the meantime, the notion of heritage and its conservation exists in the Philippines. Heritage matters and we must act on it and we must continue um, telling about it and um, explaining to people or um, um, helping other people to get to know more about their and realize their heritage. So that's my take on it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I saw one last hand before we go. We're really running out of time. We've run out of time already, actually. Raji? So this is a very short lampo, but um, in support to um, before integrating it to the local planning, as been mentioned, um, we have we want also an evidence-based policies. So we have to continue and conduct our consultative efforts that involve stakeholders at the local up to the international level. And of course, make it available, accessible, and understandable. And more importantly, valuable 
to Filipinos in general, and we will need a lot of collaborate of efforts to collaborate and to make this realize. And yeah, that's all. okay. So before I turn it over to our host, the ED of Nayong Filipino, just to summarize evidence-based local planning, finding intersections and education of all so that we can work on the narrative so that even though it's not declared, just like what Tina Paterno said, Kiapo Church survives because uh, the people itself themselves value it. Uh, I think the ED, Kay, would like to say something before we all say goodbye. For joining this conversation, I think for for a little over two hours, we uh, dug up a lot of issues that uh, we should have been asking years ago. And uh, the fact that we're doing this during a pandemic can, you know, help us look at the bright side and say that we're being pushed into doing the things that we should have done before. Uh, this provides a new lens and then should um, inspire us to work even harder because the work of heritage of creating systems um, is work for the long haul that requires different kinds of experts and support from the community and I think that's what we really should be working on uh, how can we better communicate what we're trying to do so thank you very much Kara for uh, facilitating this and for everyone for sharing really good ideas um, we're be certain that we're taking note of everything and then um, helping craft policies that could really push us in the direction where heritage is preserved properly. Okay, so thank you very much everyone for, for the discussion, all your ideas, your insights. I'm looking forward to learning more from our indigenous communities in Davao, Sir Nestor. And in um, uh, up north, and um, yeah, I think there's a lot more here. I think we touched on the core, the question really of the narratives, why we're doing this, and how we're going to be relevant uh, moving forward by working with other industries, other disciplines, and going beyond economics but a triple bottom line so thank you very much nine filipino